Hey, welcome to Manalyzing. This is where men talk about the kind of stuff that men don't talk about. Put your hard hat on, get ready for a ride. Here we go. Hey, welcome to Manalyzing. I'm Garth Haslam. I have a treat for you today. Joe DeVito, uh, Sovereign Man Man's Group, JoeDeVitoCoaching.com. I wanted to get those out first because I don't want to forget them. This guy is amazing. I His story just left me floored. His wisdom left me <laughs> speechless, literally speechless. Uh he, this is a man who is is doing what I'm doing, only he's succeeding right now, um, and he's, he's further ahead, and I consider him, after this interview, I consider him to be a mentor, a coach, and somebody I can look up to and really respect. Here is a man who, who gets it, who's been through the lowest of lows, and I'm not even going to try and tell you about his lows. They're low they're really low and the heights that he has achieved i'm i'm speechless i'm here all i can do is leave you to the podcast but this is a good one your time will be well served and i think probably you and i both need to review this one two or three times because it is that awesome i met joe uh, just on a Facebook page. I didn't know him at all. I'd never seen his face until we started talking. But what a man. What a man. Here you go. Welcome to Analyzing, where men talk about what men don't talk about. Uh, Joe DeVito, how did I meet you? Uh, on a men's group page. Uh, yeah, men's group page. Uh, tell me about that men's group page. Um my well the the name of the page uh spherical man mm -hmm. uh, i saw you put a post um that page is dedicated to basically a large men's group uh where men can connect with each other they can share vulnerably they can um just connect with each other at the deeper level and that's what i enjoy about it i learn a lot from a lot of what the men are sharing on that and i can also contribute and there's not much there's not many things like that in our culture. And oh, so I find it online. There's <laughs> nothing. You said connect at a deeper level. You know, I have a group of friends that, um, that I have cultured over the last few years. I've spent the vast majority of my life basically being the typical man where it's like, okay, I'll have, uh, I'll have, I'll adopt whatever friends my wife has. But, you know, if, if crisis moment ever comes, I'm not going to talk to them. Not going to talk to the wife, not going to talk to another man. I'm going to deal with my issues by not dealing with them and stuffing them down. So uh, the last few years, we've gone to places uh, down closer to your neck of the woods, uh, Marysvale, Utah. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and you know, just brought a few friends and uh, done a little bit of four-wheeling and a little bit of hanging out, and a little bit of talking. And one of the coolest quotes is a dude named Robert Snow, who I interviewed, he says the conversation changes in Mary's Vale, and we get a little more vulnerable, and we get to where we can actually talk to each other, um, and it gets a little deeper, and it is amazing to me how much 
everybody, everybody, every man, every woman relishes the opportunity to go a little deeper and talk a little more about stuff that really matters and not about my, that was a dusty trip or it, it was raining more than usual today, or I think I'd like pizza for dinner, you know, mm-hmm. uh, a little more vulnerable. Uh, there's so much, so much value that I think we all crave, but we don't know how to do it except for you do. I think you do. Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've had to learn to cultivate that for myself. It wasn't taught to me oh, no. and it wasn't really modeled growing up either. So you've, uh, you've accomplished some things in your life. How, what's, what's your secret sauce? What's the formula? Or maybe before we go that direction, let's, uh, let's still just uh, keep introducing you, uh, to the crowd. Um, to the one person that listens to this. Yeah. That's... <laughs> um, tell me about you. What, uh, how did you grow up? What were conditions like? What was easy? What was hard? Sure. I'm happy to. Um, I grew up in Southern California, in Long Beach, California. My father and mother um, split when I was about two years old. And then I was primarily, primarily raised by my father. And my time with him um, was nothing short of blissful growing up. Um, I was, I was able to witness some volatility uh, from him some projected rage and stuff like that at times, not directed towards me, but within the the family unit, which was quite frightening for me to be a young boy and witness that he committed suicide at when I was the age of seven. Um, I was in the home when this happened. Uh, He shot himself and my grandmother took over at that point for about a year until my, my mother came into my life. You know, growing up with my father, he always, you know, assured me I was his best friend. Um, I, that's all I can remember really of him is how loving he was for, with me, you know, standing at the beach, watching the sunset, he has his arms around me, holding me tight. He, he thought the world of me. And so I'm really appreciative and and grateful that I was able to have that kind of experience with him the short time that he was in my life. When he died, I think that's when my life really started running, uh, solely on fear. You know, shortly after that, I started developing a belief that I was only, um, going to live a life of suffering. From there forward, I remember developing that belief at a really early age. My mom came into my life when I was about nine years old, and I spent about four years with her. Uh, the first two years were beautiful. Um, I obviously didn't know her, but when she came to pick me up from my grandmother, um, I knew exactly who she was, and she kneeled down before me and opened her arms, and I just ran to her chest. That was my new safety. And shortly, well, about the third year or beginning of the third year that I was living with her, um, she developed alcoholism and a pill addiction. She became verbally abusive, physically abusive, would accuse me of stealing her pills and her beer, trying to hide it from her. She would make me feel horrible for, you know, those beliefs that she had about me. And I had a little brother at the time too, that had came to live with us from that. She had from a different marriage. And I took on the, the caregiver and protector role in the family at that point, you know, numerous nights and mornings waking up to her naked on the couch, some other drunk person laying next to her, um, having to go to the local church to, to see if they could help us out with rent money and grocery money so that I could get all the rent paid and get groceries. And that lasted until I was about 13 years of age. My my mother's brother, my uncle, to take my younger brother because I couldn't care for him anymore. 
at that point we had ran away together and I was just couch surfing at different friends' houses, those who were kind enough to let me in. And I, that was most everybody. I, you know, everybody always saw my potential before I could. And I, you know, I appreciate that, but I had to find it for myself. That time with my mother, you know, seeing her unconscious quite often just triggered the memory of my dad's passing time and time and time again. And so it was really hard for me to find any type of safety in this world and security, let alone having nothing but wounded masculine men modeling to me what it looks like to treat a woman because she was in abusive relationships with men, uh, men that would take advantage of her. I've watched her get sexually assaulted one night and all of that was being conditioned into me at an early age. And so I, I couldn't make any sense of the world that I was living in early on, but I did develop an acute sense of self-awareness in my early childhood. I've always been extremely aware of how I feel because I had to be in order to protect myself, which has been a blessing in disguise now that I'm an adult. So that was, you know, early childhood. High school was really difficult for me. I was the class clown. That was my way of mitigating some of the pain that I felt internally. Right. Always making people laugh, getting kicked out of class for making people laugh. Um, I was the jokester archetype, if you're familiar with archetypes. <laughs> uh <-huh>. Yes. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, although there was consequences for that behavior, um, it, it was a, a way for me to survive. And it protected me um, from letting people too close to my pain. Um, that abandonment wound runs deep for me. Yeah, I've uh, I understand on on one level, you know, if you can you can keep people at a certain distance with continuous humor, and I've uh, I've personally dealt with pain by using humor. At at some of my darkest moments is when I was the funniest. Yeah, I I went to a friend's funeral about two months ago, and he was another one of the funny guys that I grew up with, known him forever. Uh -huh. And everybody at his funeral was wondering, God, he was the life of the party. Like, how could he have committed suicide? I don't understand this. I said, him and I had Robin Williams syndrome. It's the way we dealt with pain most of our life. Tell me about Robin Williams syndrome. That was hard to say. Well, um, that was a man that was suffering in silence. And he got through his whole life of being the funny guy, being, although he was extremely creative, but he had that unconscious shadow of pain that haunted him. And I've been to the, been to that spot and I'll get to that in a minute. If you'd like for me to continue sharing. Yeah. Keep going. So after high school, well, about my senior year, I, I met a friend and his mother had invited me to come stay with them. And they provided me a very structured and consistent home to live in. And she was a businesswoman here in Southern Utah and, and with a chip on her shoulder to outproduce the men in the, in the community. Right. So she was my mentor. Um, I started off selling used cars. Well, I started off washing used cars, but then I started selling and I did so well with sales and ended up becoming the sales manager. And then we ended up going in business together um, with an RV business in Southern Utah. And so I found that success was a way for me to really cope with, uh, with my pain, outward success. I sold real estate, had an art, you know, was partners in the RV dealership, had a marketing firm. And there was one day that quit working. Mm -hmm. And when it quit working, I didn't know quite what to do with myself. I had just gotten a bad motocross accident. I was prescribed pain medications and 
that would a uh, that would be the start of a downward spiral for me that would last several years um, in the realm of addiction. I lost everything within a year's time. I was kicked out of the company. I got divorced. Well, in one week, I was kicked out of the company. I got divorced and I abandoned my sister who I adopted. She came into my life, for, you know, in, in this story as well. When my mother came knocking on my door and I saw she was going through the same things that my brother and I went through. So I adopted her. But then I abandoned them and moved to Northern California to find myself. And that lasted about four years. I found out my shadow followed me everywhere I went, everything that I was not dealing with. And I came back to to St. George, Utah and started using pills again. And that got too expensive and I found heroin. And within about uh, six months of using that, I was a homeless heroin junkie with a needle in his arm, wandering the streets of St. George, Utah, in and out of jail. I'd managed to sober up for a little while and had a couple of children of my own, but I couldn't stay sober. My My son was about one year old and my daughter was about... Let's see, he was about one and a half. My daughter was six months when I tried to get sober again. That last week using was, I had many rock bottoms. I mean, you can tell from my story, I've had many rock bottoms. However, this one, this one took the cake. My last day using, I was in a concession shack at a local stadium in St. George, Utah, where I was sleeping. It was the middle of winter, December 28th, my birthday. And... I had a backpack and photos of my two kids laying on the cement and the shame that I felt that I would never be a part of their life again. I intentionally overdosed. I used enough heroin to kill three people and woke up six hours after that, black and blue, nearly frozen to death with so much awareness of what it was that I've been avoiding and running from my whole life. My father's suicide flashed before my eyes. My mother emotionally and physically abusing me flashed before my eyes. The shame I felt about abandoning my sister and my children flashed before my eyes. I couldn't ignore it. And I walked five miles to a local detox center, pounding on the door, and without a dollar, you know, in my pocket. And I asked them to scholarship me. I had been there five times before, but I think they could tell that I was ready at that moment. And they let me in. They put me in their detox center for about seven days. And I've been sober since going on four years now. I have and, so many questions. Keep going. Yeah. <clears throat> After I did a detox in an inpatient rehabilitation center, and their intensive outpatient program. I did it all. Um, I walked out of the uh, int intensive outpatient addiction recovery center feeling one day I just walked out of group and I said, this isn't for me anymore. What I need is deeper than this. And I found a therapist who did hypnotherapy, shadow work, breath work, and meditation, a trauma specialist. I did that for a few years. I, I came face to face with every bit of the stuff that I've been running from and trying to avoid my whole life but in a kind, loving, nurturing environment that was supportive of where I was in my journey. And I started having just rapid awareness with this trauma therapy and the shadow work that I was doing and learning meditation. 
been meditating twice a day for nearly four years now, and it's absolutely changed my life. I have my children, but I've had my children back in my life. I was about a year into recovery when I started to be able to see them again. There were strict boundaries placed on me for good reasons that I had to adhere to and respect. And now I am just a blessed father of a, a three and a half year old and a five year old. Oh, that's awesome. So, you know, in that time, doing all the shadow work, spiritual work, I found my purpose in working with other men to reclaim their masculinity in a healthy way, to be conscious fathers and conscious leaders of the community, to build self-awareness, emotional intelligence, and to provide them a safe, nurturing space for them to dive inward to their depth, visit the pain, and have a sense of mastery over the life they want to create. Talk about turning lemons into lemonade. That's not even a very good analogy for what you're doing. <laughs> you, you turned the uh, the darkest of dark into, um, and I don't term, use this term lightly, you, uh, you turned your life into a lighthouse. Um, so many questions that I have. I wish I could even remember them all. But um, you talked about... Uh, you know, men owning their, their masculinity. What, what does that mean to you? For me, that means it, I mean, first it's a journey of self-awareness first and foremost that I take, you know, men on. And the way I do that is through a modality known as shadow work. You can call it parts work or internal family systems, just deal with, you know, dealing with the deeper aspects of the male psyche uncovering the way that we've been conditioned to see strength as some end-all be-all to live our life off of. And we've got a very skewed vision of what strength really means, um, but it's what's been modeled to us in society. Yes, it has. And strength, what, strength means some very odd things. Strength means for most of us men, it means sit down and shut up and don't tell anybody about your stuff. You know, that's, right. That's strength theoretically, and it's it's not strength, but it is stupid. Well, that's that's the shadow side of strength. I wanted to talk to you about the shadow about shadow. Let's talk about the shadow side of strength. Uh, you used the you used the term shadow before. Talk to me about that. So the shadow is the unconscious parts of ourself that we reject, suppress, or deny. This is where shame is born. This is where all of those lower vibrational feelings are, you know, are housed is in the shadow. And these are things that we are unaware of. And so we walk around basically unconscious, projecting all of these shadow parts of ourself outward and relationships, especially is where most of the projection happens. You know, we're either extremely reactive anytime there's an emotional intensity brewing within the relationship. Um, where we either shut down or hop in the truck and chirp the tires on our way out of the driveway because we uh, want to avoid conflict. We don't know what to do with it. Um, it's the seven-year-old little boy in all, in all of men that had a father that was devoted to providing at all costs, even if it meant never emotionally bonding with my son. And that has an effect on us when we're growing up because we can only, at seven years old, we can only go as far as making a meaning that there's something wrong with me individually. We can't see that dad's working his tail off and is overly stressed about finances and stressed out about the relationship with mom and that it has nothing to do with us. So we take that all on. 
we're very ego centered human beings from zero to seven. Yeah. Um, and so all of that stuff gets stored in what's known as the shadow, the unconscious or the subconscious mind. And that's what gets projected outward. Um, a couple of the different si shadow sides of myself um, was like the abandonment wound. The abandonment wound that was built when my father committed suicide. I felt I was unworthy of love. It was just a general sense of unworthiness, which played out in all aspects of my life. There was no way that I was going to um, create the life that I felt like I knew was possible for me or do the extreme things that I knew I was capable of doing because there was something holding me back and I felt very unfulfilled. And that's all boils down to an unconscious belief of um, I'm not worth it. You're not enough. Not enough. And that's not something we can actually see. We can't see that we're not enough, but there's experiences that we have as human beings that trigger that belief. And the more often we see it, you know, the more, the deeper it goes into the subconscious and it's, it's our, it becomes our operating manual. Yeah. to live life you know when i got started on on manalizing uh you know this is this is huge this is just such a massive project to try and change the culture of men uh from from thinking that strength it means that you have to be an island and have to never have feelings never deal with your stuff and uh and then beat your wife every friday night you know that version of masculinity um, yeah, that's toxic, but it's, uh, and at the same time, uh, you, you probably heard the quote from Brene Brown, where she talks about how, um, a man came up to her, said that he would rather, you know, he felt like his, his wife and his daughters would rather see him die on his white horse than fall off of it. Yep. Um, all of which is so broken. So I, um, as I was starting this manalizing, I was like, I'm not enough to do this. You know, what makes me think I can do this? And I was about ready to quit until a couple of minutes later, somebody came up and said, Hey, I heard your last podcast. It was awesome. And I thought that's what I needed. Um, since that time, there's been a thousand other moments where I was like, I'm not enough. I can't do this. And what came back was, yeah, you're right. I, I, I can't but I've got a team of people around me that can help. Yeah. And those are the things that I've learned in that category is that, uh, you know, we, we all feel like we're not enough and I certainly am not, but we move forward anyways. That's how I deal with it. How have you dealt with that? With the feeling of not enough? Yeah. I, I I'll keep saying this throughout the entire <laughs> interview, but, uh, shadow work. Mm-hmm. I, I will always go back to that because I have to be able to bring what's unconscious conscious so that it's in my awareness. So I'm aware of it so that I can change it. Now in the process of shadow work, where we're looking and I'm looking at like all the parts of me that I've repressed, suppressed, denied, judged, shamed in those parts is what's known as the golden shadow. My purpose was hidden in there. My mission in this life was hidden in there. My creativity, my resilience, all of these beautiful qualities and traits and values were hidden in my shadow. And once I started to connect with that, doing things that I'm passionate about, being able to engage in joy, the joy of life, like that naturally dissipates. 
So it's not just one thing that we can do uh, to combat the feeling of unworthiness or not enoughness. It's the natural result of doing the inner work. You just yeah. automatically become enough. Automatically become enough. Man, I wish I was good enough to, to ask you follow-up questions on that one. Did I hear you say that your purpose, and I'm going to extend that and mean any man's purpose or any person's purpose, is buried among their shadows? For me, it was. For you, it was. And so far, the men that I've worked with, it's been the same for them because they were unable to see it until they were unblocked. Uh -huh. It's like, if I can't see love, I must be blocked from it in some way. And that's a, that's a huge one for men is love because we are natural givers of love. We, I, I'm imagining a pile of manure and you've got to dig through the manure to, to find the golden treasure box. Yeah. That's got to be true for, I, I, I can only think all of us. You know, that until you, you get the manure dealt with, you can't, uh, you can't deal with your purpose. That's and joy. Uh, I mean, all of it's, all of it's in there. You know, it's the, the story of the golden Buddha that was, you know, covered up in clay so that uh, the neighboring country that was invading them wouldn't, you know, steal it. Uh -huh. And over the years, the mud started, or the, the concrete that were mud that was covering the golden Buddha started to crack and peel away. And one man, a monk came by and noticed there was something shiny behind the, the veil, the concrete, and he started chipping away slowly at it and uncovered a golden Buddha. And that's the same for us as human beings. I mean, especially men, we are up against so much conditioning in this culture that we must be stoic, that we must be strong, we must dominate, we must be in control all of the time, and none of it is true. That's not the nature of masculinity. It's the wounded side of masculinity that is just being projected in our culture. We see it in politics. We see it in war. It's all over. It's a broken default sort of uh, sort of masculinity that uh, we pick because we don't know anything else. It's kind of right. the lowest rung of all. But it's something that we can go, that's a thing. So we go there because that's all that we can see. Yeah, and uh, in that is the biggest lie we've ever been sold. And in this, you know, in the United States culture, especially where, like, I've had all of the things that were supposed to, to be it, the business, the wife, the house, the dog, the cars, the side-by-side -side ATVs, motorcycles, all of it. And at that peak is where I felt most unfulfilled most empty, because I did not know thyself. You know, and if a guy is empty inside, you can, you can go for all of the peripheral stuff like you mentioned the the job the house the wife um the toys and you can project to others that you've got yourself your stuff together uh with the toys mm -hmm. doesn't mean that yep. you know who you are no so what is masculinity i'm still finding that out that's a good answer and i started this journey trying to define that but i found myself I found that I was putting myself in a box. You know, there's certain qualities and characteristics that make up masculinity, such as um, strength, courage, mastery, compassion. I mean, there's a lot of these things that make up masculinity, but it's about finding out what it means to be good at being a man for ourselves. 
Yeah, I guess there's also, you know, you mentioned the uh, the job, the car, the, you know, some of those trappings. There's also um, your health, you know, how much, uh, how, how, how much muscle do you have? You know, how, how handsome are you? What's the size of the unit? There's, there's so right, many right. things we can, we can use to identify or to measure ourselves as a man and they're all meaningless. And yeah. uh, I think a woman would tell you, you know, if you, if you just were to know who you are, really, that'd probably be better than having all the, the trucks and, and the toys and yeah. the job. Yeah. Uh, healthy masculinity is another one of those byproducts of doing the inner work. You know what I mean? And the, the latest trait that I found with masculinity that was very deep within me was assertiveness, uh -huh. which is a very emasculine trait. And I didn't understand its power until I started diving into it and practicing assertiveness, meaning the ability to, so let me back up why assertiveness is so important for men. One of the things that triggers our anger is disrespect. Right. And so the way that I minimize that is with being assertive and being able to assert boundaries and maintain them. You know, I always wondered why I felt so walked on in relationships or not even acknowledged for anything that I do in the relationship. And it was because I didn't have boundaries that I was asserting um, that would lead me to being respected. Oh, you're talking my language, dude. <laughs> I think so many of us. Not, not in te integrity, of course, but. <laughs> yeah. Well, and there's a very significant difference between being assertive and being abusive. I think abusive is kind of the opposite thereof assertive is I'm going to expect you to, to uh, treat me with respect and I will do the same with you. Um, abusiveness is, is you will honor me or I'll hit you. Right. Uh, and, it's a very passive role. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, in my experience, um, what you're talking about is the reason for me being divorced the first time. Uh, I had a first wife who she did what she wanted. She had daddy issues and she decided at one point that I was her daddy and she hated her dad. So she tried to work out her daddy issues by hating me and I allowed it. Mm -hmm. And so I learned to be disrespected and not do anything and just just deal with it because you know, I didn't know how to do anything else. Was that was that modeled to you to be the, uh, the I'm sure you've heard of the nice guy syndrome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was my dad, my mom was very uh dominant in uh in my parents' relationship. Uh my my dad would go to work, he'd come home and he'd disappear. Usually he'd go do a second job or something, but my mom was very dominant. So it was modeled to me. But uh, it was modeled poorly, and then I, uh, with my first marriage, I, I dealt with things that way, and it resulted in, uh, at one point, I ran into somebody else who was like, you know, who you think you are, that's not who I see. And I was like, oh, really? Tell me more. And that was all it took. Mm -hmm. um, so then, uh, because I was such a wimp and allowed that sort of... Uh, stuff to happen um there was a divorce my daughter you know you mentioned you mentioned that uh, the kids think it's their fault she thought it was her fault she says come back home 
we'll be nice. We'll be good. <laughs> I tried to tell her, um, it's not got anything to do with you, but she didn't believe it. Uh, she has lived a hard life because I was mm -hmm. her protector and I left, I was gone. She had no protector. And, uh, to this day, um, bulimia drugs, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the list goes on. Yeah. And that all stems from me not setting boundaries. So I, I can identify with what you're talking about. Yeah. You know, yeah. It's, uh, we teach people how to pay. treat us. Teaching people how to treat us. You probably do that with men too, don't you? Mm hmm Yep. The, you know, the biggest issue I find with my clients so far, I mean, the most common theme to date is a lack of fulfillment in life. And, you know, you touched on exercise, but I mean, in, in all areas, uh -huh. we have to do work on, you know, whether it's relationship or physical health, because, or spiritually, physical health, relationships, health, you know, uh, what they're doing for their body, aside from exercise, as far as uh, food health is concerned. Um, and there's a lot of shame around fatherhood. They do not feel like they're showing up enough for their children. Yeah. Yeah. My, uh, my dad, for example, thought that he was probably doing his role by bringing in the money. Mm -hmm. Um, I needed a little more than that. Can I ask you what you did need that you, you, you think of that you really, really needed in those moments? Uh, yeah. Turn the, turn the rules around. I'll take some questions. Um, <laughs> What I needed from him, I felt like his role in the family was being, was limited to being the executioner. You know, if my mom felt like I needed a beating, it was, it was go beat your son and he'd come, right. he'd go do it. And, you know, he was also, he, he grew up in a children are to be seen and not heard sort of environment. So, um, you know, he learned it honestly as well, yeah. but I would have liked to have seen him throw me a couple of footballs. Yes. Uh, he did assign my brother to do that, but my brother treated it like a task and I knew I was a task. And so I, I got no value out of it. Yeah. Um, he did try taking me to football games, uh, for, for a while. And I've mentioned this on a number of other podcasts. The only thing that we would talk about to and from the game is how to get to the game and how to get home from the game. Uh, I didn't know that he could carry a conversation until after my mom died. He was about 85 at the time. He, um, what would I have liked from him? Uh, you know, I didn't, uh, I didn't do sports. I, I was as much a nerd then as I am now. Um, you know, I didn't go play little league football. It wasn't a thing, you know, we were told we didn't have the money for it. Uh, but even if he would have sat down and played chess with me, but, um, you know, basically my dad, he was a simple man. He grew up in a, uh, in a cow town out in, uh, Eastern Utah and, uh, didn't have a lot of training himself. And I'm sure he did the best that he could, but it, it left some things. And, you know, and like I say, he was, he was trained that uh, he wasn't interesting until he was old enough to work. And mm. then as a worker, then he became valuable. And, you know, that's just another one of the items that 
is a broken expectation of, of men. Yeah. And we take that on. That's another area that I work with men on, um, that I, cause I had to do the work on myself in this area. I wondered, I was wondering why, you know, one of the things that was lacking in a lot of my relationships was this feeling of not being acknowledged. And I wondered why that was so important to me. And then I realized that most all of my self-worth is wrapped up in my utilities as far as what I do in the world. Your utilities, meaning what, yeah, your job, the the stuff you accomplish. Yeah. And, you know, once I started to look at that, I'm like, okay, well, acknowledgement now feels like kryptonite. Like it just feels like love to me. Right. It's like my life force. I, I really enjoy when I'm being acknowledged for what I'm doing that is from an authentic place. Right. So, yeah, that's, uh, that's a default for us men. You know, you, uh, you meet, the first thing you find out is what's your name. The second is what do you do for a living? And it's kind of like, what's your value to the universe uh, right. is, is that next question. And then, and then if the guy says, well, I'm the CEO of General Electric, then you're a big, cool guy. If, you know, if you're a janitor at the junior high, uh, something else. Right. And so, yeah, I've got a friend, uh, Robert Snow. I've interviewed him. He's a cool guy. Um, but he has changed how, what that second question is for him. It's like, what do you enjoy doing? And getting away from even that man programming hard. Uh, yeah, we, we have a long way to go. Um, and, uh, I'm, I'm grateful you're doing what you're doing. Talk about for a minute what you're doing. What uh, what do you do? How does it work? How does somebody get a hold of you? What does it look and feel like? Just tell me about the experience. Right now, I am well. I just finalized another another program that I offer for men, which is called the Conscious Fatherhood Program. This is a program that men can enroll in. Um, basically, that teaches them to build emotional intelligence qualities such as empathy. Uh, open communication, being really active with their children and coming to that place of awareness of how they show up does impact their child's development. And I know this firsthand, the importance of being a conscious father means we are a fully aware father of what our absence does to our children, uh, how being emotionally connected to our children impacts them. And I've seen it firsthand with my kids. My kids are so emotionally intelligent for being three and five. They can communicate with me how they feel, why they feel that way, and also what their needs are. But I have those conversations with them and I model to them what that looks like. And I'm aware of, you know, how coddling affects a toddler. I'm aware of like all these other different things on how it can negatively impact my child's development. But, you know, you look at the statistics in our culture and why I developed this program, 60% 60% of youth behavioral disorders is a representation of an absent father. And that doesn't mean that the father is totally absent from the family picture, but that he's not emotionally available. And then you look at the addiction statistics, the rape and sexual abuse statistics, they're all extremely high in single mother homes or at a, a home where the father is not emotionally present. Yeah. And so I, with my own journey with my kids, like, that would that became like the the number one thing I wanted to start to develop was a conscious fatherhood program and and really help men find what their truth is and what's lacking in their relationship with their children. Because we feel that as men in the form of shame or guilt. I don't know, I have not met a father who enjoys being away from his children all the time, yet they think it's the only way to live. And they cry and they have so much shame attached to it. And 
we cannot be the best versions of ourselves anytime there's shame present in any capacity. And so we got to work through that. But my primary program is a three-month deep dive program where we really just go in and start uncovering what it is that's actually running a man's life. All of the conditioning that he's received from society, you know, familial, cultural, and societal conditioning. We look into areas of self-worth, building confidence, finding out their potential, but it's, it's deep inner work. And we develop self-compassion processes, you know, along the way, because we need to have self-compassion if we're going to dive deep into ourselves and uncover the parts that we don't want to look at, you know, the parts that we know are shit, excuse me for saying that, but um, how we're showing up in relationships versus how we really want to be showing up in relationships, but we don't know how to get there. Right. Like all of it. And so uh, my minimum program is a three month program. It consists of me giving tools for self-compassion, tools for self-awareness, and men coming up with all of their own answers, which is really empowering because we have the answers hidden within us. And it just takes somebody probing us and asking us powerful questions in a way that allows that part of ourselves to kind of come up. I love Um, that term, powerful questions. How do you do that? Do you bring people to a location there in Southern Utah? No, I right now it's done uh, primarily virtually. Uh-huh. I have two people that I'll go into their home and work with them. That's where they feel safest. But most of the time it's done virtually. We'll get into breathwork practices and meditations just for the simple fact that it requires a calm nervous system for us to go into the subconscious and do that deep work. Um, I also do hypnotherapy alongside of my shadow work practitioner stuff because that puts us into a childlike state where our mind is very pliable and working together all parts of it so that we can become fully conscious long enough to, uh, to cultivate a deep sense of self-awareness. Yeah. Like, how did you land on this? You know, did you go down the road of uh, getting the psychology degree or, you know, I studied, I studied psychology and then I didn't like it anymore. So Throughout my my spiritual awakening, and then I started uh, diving into a study consciousness and human potential uh, for two and a half years. And in that, I was doing a meditation one day, exploring what my person purpose and mission is in life. And all I got back was through a series of asking myself questions: was men are suffering, and I didn't know how at that time. I mean, I knew I had suffered as a man in this culture you know, comparing myself to alpha males and beta males and all this other stuff that goes on. But then I went into, um, I hopped online and found a conscious and spiritual men's embodiment empowerment or men's embodiment uh, coaching program to take, which was nine months long. We did parts work, internal family systems therapy, men's embodiment practices, working with the nervous system, working with the subconscious mind, like it was a deep dive for nine months straight. And then I started my personal, you know, professional practice. Right. Yeah. I, um, again, Robert Snow, again, I don't know why he keeps coming up in, in today's conversation, but he decided that he was going to, with his wife, uh, become a, uh, marriage guru. And, you know, rather than do the psychology thing, he still went through a set of courses, mm-hmm. uh, and became a very specialized sort of a guy and he's doing very well. You know, he's saving a lot of marriages. He's, uh, he's making a difference and he's, uh, with his wife teaming up to find their and, and execute their purpose. And I, 
I admire him greatly for that. And for the same reason, I admire you because you found a way that is your way that gets, that gets you to uh, be able to do what you need to do. And, you know, you, maybe you take the psychology classes, you realize it doesn't work. And rather than say, well, this is the way everybody does that. I needed to continue to do it this way. It's like, no, this doesn't work. I'm going to do it my way. Thank you very much. And then you do. And that's to me, that's kind of awesome. Yeah. I, I've become quite the, like, I challenge everything, right? I didn't Uh go to a, I didn't study consciousness and human potential at a general Western education program. It was through, it's called Maharishi International University, which is a consciousness-based education system where they develop the person, the student so that they can learn. And I challenge almost everything. I've learned to just challenge the status quo and ask myself powerful questions. Does this serve me? Is like the most powerful question I can ask. If a person, you or I or somebody were to create a course on just how to ask powerful questions, we could cause some damage. Yeah. I mean, our language shapes our reality, uh-huh. including the way that we use language with ourselves. What would you say is your, you, you've described many uh, low moments in your life. What's your lowest? And why did that turn out to be a blessing for you? It had to have been addiction. I used to think I knew loneliness and despair, but with addiction, it's magnified a hundred thousand times. It took everything away from me. And I don't mean externally, but any amount of hope, which is so necessary in this realm of being human, it put me into deep despair and that despair ended up being the gift I needed to get out. However, being homeless being an IV heroin user, you start to see how the culture really shows up for those who are suffering. And you become extremely lonely because you don't feel seen by anybody. And so that was my lowest moment. Absolutely. Even in comparison to my first daughter who was born and then, you know, died when she was born, my father committing suicide, my mother ended up dying shortly, you know, after I, we departed and disconnected. But all of that wasn't anything in comparison to the suffering I uh, accumulated uh, through addiction. You know, I shared a little bit on the gift that it did provide me, the gift of awareness. I mean, addiction served as a catalyst for my journey of healing and growth. It was like exponential. Once I faced that, once I had the awareness of what it was I was trying to run from or avoid or not look at. And then now the way, the role that I'm showing up in, in this life to help other men, like I had to go through those things. It's the hero's journey. And now I take what I've learned and come back to the community and share that with the community, completing that cycle of the hero's journey. I'm not going to say I'm grateful for my, for addiction by any means. I think that would be a little bit ignorant for me to say that, but I'm fully aware of the gift that it provided me as a result of addiction and that deep level of suffering, I understand the spiritual truths at a deeper level that there is grace in suffering. The other spiritual truth that I've come to know is that grief is just love with nowhere to go. Those are some of the gifts that have been born out of um, out of a, the low part, low point in my life of, of suffering through addiction. It's made me an amazing father because I went through the abandoning. I abandoned my children for addiction 
and the awareness that it provided me when I first that that first day of after or that moment I woke up out of the intentional overdose, being blasted with that awareness, I knew that I was here to break the cycle, the cycle of drug abuse, abuse, neglect, uh, abandonment that runs deep in my family history. I'm the one breaking that. And that has a lasting, when we talk about legacy, we, you know, a lot of people in this culture think, oh, well, what am I leaving for my family? It's like, I want to, I want to raise such emotionally and self-aware children that develop their purpose and live their potential because then their children will follow and then their children will follow. And that's a motivator for me. What kind of impact can I create now on the lives of other people that shows up seven years down the line where they don't have to live in a world ran by toxic behavior or wounded men? Talk about the ultimate gift. I mean, if you look at it uh, that way, you know, what would a man rather leave his children? $10 million each and them not knowing who they are or how to how to spend or invest that and you know and having broken relationships with everybody or 50 cents and them knowing who they are and having a good life because they know how to create boundaries they know how to have good relationships they know how to how to how to be around their spouses their children their they know how to have friends. They know how to be supported and support others when on a daily basis, you know, which yeah. would you rather leave your kids? And, uh, you know, I'd never considered it that way, but, um, my goodness, that's, that's gold right there. You know, we'd, we'd, we'd all rather leave kids being successful rather than, than just give them the money that they might just use on more heroin. Sure. Yeah, I, you know, any man that's listening, I would definitely encourage them to self-reflect and maybe even ask themselves a simple yet powerful question. If I was to die tomorrow, what would I regret? Yeah. You know, for me, I was asked that question a year and a half ago on a podcast and it was, did I love enough? And did I take the leap of faith to uncover my potential? And that's still difficult for me. Um, taking that leap of faith and because there's so many things I want to do. Uh -huh. There's such an impact that I, you know, I want to have in the world. And what, I'm very, very mindful of what my end day, you know, I have it in my journal, how many days I have left if I was to live to 80 and uh -huh. what do I want to accomplish in that time? I'm very conscious and aware of only having, you know, 14,580 days left. So <laughs> it's a great motivator for me. <laughs> yeah. yeah right. but I, we need to look at those, those aspects. A number of years ago, I felt like, you know, I really only have until I'm 65 uh, for me to accomplish things. And, um, and then I talked to some people who were like 70 something and they said, oh, life doesn't necessarily end for you at 65 and 63. Yeah. I'm not getting, I'm not getting too much further than I am. What are the two things that, um, that you would like to create that you haven't by the time you get to whatever the goal age is? Well, the one that I'm working on now is creating a retreat for both men and young men mm -hmm. where young men can come in and um, experience uh, a rite of passage, if you will. 
an initiation into manhood and then them receiving, you know, a couple months after the the retreat of coaching to help integrate what they've learned. I see a huge a huge need for that in our culture this, you know, nowadays where a lot of men are absent from the family units. Uh-huh. And I would love to be able to provide that for them. Um, but also um, a men's retreat all over the country that men can go to and connect with other like-hearted men and be challenged and be pushed to grow and pushed to go deeper within themselves to learn practices of what does it look like to reconnect with nature, which is we are biologically wired for nature as men. We all are. Uh-huh. Yet we're so disconnected from it. I mean, I feel it now. I have the awareness of it. And when I, anytime I sense anxiety, I know I've got to reconnect. I've got to go put my bare feet in some dirt and just be in nature for a little bit. And so a place where they can, you know, come back to their roots and simplify their life and heal and grow together and be challenged. I have to surround myself by people that are greater than me. Cause if I'm the smartest man in the room, I'm in the wrong room. <laughs> well said <laughs> that, that is very well said, <laughs> but I, I would love to have those, those two retreats first and foremost. Well, I'm, uh, I'm sure you will. That's, uh, that's going to happen for you. And here's how I know that's going to happen is because you know that you want to make that happen. And a lot of us, go about life wishing that things were better, but we can't figure out what better means. You've done that. I very much appreciate your time. There's uh, you know, I, I could go through this podcast and, you know, there's, there's a hundred times when I thought I ought to stop this guy and ask him about that. But I, but, but you were on a roll and, and <laughs> the, the, the role that you were on, I didn't want to stop that train. So, you know, yeah, we could, we could do a hundred more podcasts, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I very much appreciate your time. If, uh, one last question, let's say that you could, um, go back in time to, to go visit a younger you and you could give him any advice you want. Uh, what age dude would that be? And what would you tell him? I do this quite often with journaling and, and the shadow work that I do, I'm, I'm often communicating with these parts of myself. I would go back to age seven, which I've done through, you know, writing and, and hypnotherapy work. However, the one message I would provide that little boy, and I often say this to him, I love you and you're allowed to feel scared. Thank you, Joe. Yeah. Thank you. And for the work that you're doing, we need this.